0: Our scripture this morning, as we started in uh, in our reading, was Psalm 133. Now, Psalm 133 is a very short psalm, and this is, the, this is the last of this series that we've had in going through the psalms this summer. Summer is coming to a close, and fall is, fall is upon us. It's a short psalm. It's a very clear psalm. It has has what I think is an essential message. It's good for us to wrap things up in the psalms, for now, with this notion of being united together. But it's a a brief message, and yet it recognizes something that's difficult for us. Unity is desired, but it's difficult. We, We either, as a church, we try to be unified together, and yet... There's so many things that pull us apart. We can end up giving in to that American individuality and have something for everybody and just let people go this way and that way and do the things that they want and how how they see things. Or we can impose a uniformity. Everybody in this church is supposed to act a particular way. They should all dress a particular way. They should even talk in a certain kind of language. We'd prefer King James Version Elizabethan language, okay? That's a uniformity that's imposed, and there's some cultures within churches and families that do impose uniformity. And uniformity is not necessarily unity. Now, in your family, you probably practice, especially when the kids are younger, you practice uniformity. They all go together to the same place, and you decide what's going to be the appropriate thing to wear. And while you have um, more uh, control rather than merely influence, you're able to, in a sense, impose a unity among the, or uniformity among the young ones that is setting some patterns that you hope those patterns will continue as they grow up for themselves. And that the family's faith and practices and even some of those patterns, some of those patterns are going to adjust and change and make their own traditions and norms. But you hope some of those essential patterns that you have laid for them, you hope those become their own shared purpose and priorities. And that you'll go from uniformity to a unity together because you're more of the same mind together about things. But that's not something you can compel. In fact, our psalm does not have a command in it. Psalm 133 does not present a command for us to obey. Rather, it it casts a vision for us to accept, to appropriate, to embrace. Spurgeon has said, in the terms of uniformity versus unity, that there's no need for uniformity when we have the unity that is described in Psalm 133. So that's what I want to endeavor this morning. Psalm 133, is, it should be relatively brief to be able to explain this together, and yet it's a strange psalm, isn't it? You start out pretty clear. We've got broccoli and ice cream. Okay, so much for that. Then we move into a couple of images that are a little harder to understand. Oil dripping down somebody's beard. Or the dew on the mountains. And is the dew on these mountains or that mountain? It's it's kind of confusing there. And so let's look into Psalm 133, verses 1 to 3. And as we do, I want to keep this phrase before us. It's one of the verses that Ben read to us earlier. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 3. Be eager to maintain. The unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And I think each of those phrases actually relates to one of the verses of this psalm. Let's begin with verse 1 then. Be eager or even strive for unity. I chose that on purpose. Striving sounds kind of like strife, which doesn't quite seem to go with unity, but we're to strive for unity. We're to pursue it. We're to be eager for it. Zealous is another word that's used. Well, if we're supposed to pursue this, we're eager to maintain that unity. What is it to dwell in unity? What is this unity? Think of unity as a, a whole church holiness. And I don't mean in the King James English speech patterns and behavior that we're all going to conform to externally. I'm thinking of holiness in the sense of being set apart for a particular purpose, a higher calling and purpose of God. That not just an individual is set apart, but a church together shares a calling. They're set apart together, and so they devote themselves together to something better. That's, that's what I want us to think about when we think in terms of unity, that we're growing together in a mind of Christ, not just individually. So much in America today, we talk about the individuality of our faith. And thus, even the, in the, the, the privacy of our own faith and, 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 and how we understand it and practice it, we, we love individualism in America, and we each individually, for instance, as we described, we each individually partake of the bread, the true bread from heaven, which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world, the Lord Jesus. We each need to believe individually for ourselves and trust in him. There's an individual aspect to our faith, but there's a together aspect that we are members individually of one body together in unity. And so unity is actually something that you can't experience individually. You cannot grow in unity individually. This is one of those things that you have to do with others, even if that's going to be messy at times. This, this This unity is a plurality, I could say, in the same mind. We together have a same singular mind, a particular focus. There's a focus on harmony rather than the individual, the harmony that comes from together. Think about in music, think about the the worship team, or think about in, in orchestra even. Many different instruments, but beautiful in harmony together. It's said that a distinguishing mark of Christianity, Jesus says this, is that they love one another. When Christians are disconnected from that community, they can't love one another. They, they neglect something that is crucial, that is essential for both their individual and, their, and the body together. So it is with unity. We need to be together. We are not to be in isolation because we how blessed how good and pleasant it is when we dwell together in unity now i mentioned before it's not merely a same mindedness that i'm talking about i'm not talking about we can we 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 get rid of all these side issues we say that aren't merely so important as as being together is and so whatever those doctrines or matters of faith that we hold that not all other Christians agree with. We need to lay those aside so that we can be together because that's most important. And Jesus even prayed for Christians to be one, right? well we're going to we're going to unpack that a little bit. We'll look at John chapter seventeen, but that's, it's, it's, it's not a unity, somebody said it actually between the two services, unity, it's not a unity based on compromise, but on what we do genuinely share together, and that we need to share together. Unity is good, good is a qualitative term, I talked about the broccoli, it's qualitative, it's the right thing, it's, it's, it's good versus bad. It doesn't mean I want it, there are many things that might be good for me, like Exercise that I might not want. Maybe afterwards I experienced the good of it, but in the midst of it, running was that way for me. People talk about a runner's high. I never found it. I don't get the attraction. But I did find that one good thing about running was when I was running, I could eat whatever I wanted because I was burning calories, and that at least was pleasant. So there was a coming together. But it's good in a quality. It's right. It's noble. The acceptable way. Things that we should objectively desire. Pleasant is delightful in experiential terms. There's the ice cream. Broccoli is good, but not pleasant. Ice cream is pleasant, but not good. Unity is both of those. It It is good for us, and we will enjoy the experience of it together. It'll be desirable. Now, Just because we're Christians doesn't mean we're together. Just because we're Christians doesn't mean we are united. Just because you're one family doesn't mean you're united. The kids could describe that a little bit. And it's not just with two-year-olds, is it? It's with 20-year-olds. It's with 60-year-olds. It's a problem we carry with us that, that just because we're family doesn't mean we're united together. Ask your wife later. You could have that conversation. Be in unity together. It will be wonderful. We're not always together, even though we're family, right? But we should strive for unity. We should pursue it. We should be eager for it. We know that unity is not something that's automatic. A shared identity doesn't automatically create unity because the Bible here says in in verse 1, it is good and pleasant when... Brethren dwell in unity. What does that imply? Sometimes we don't. We should because it's good. We want to because it's pleasant. It doesn't mean we're there. We'll strive after it. It's been said to live above with saints we love oh, that will be glory. To live below with the saints we know now that's another story. Right, Unity with believers around us in one family. How do we do that? How might we step into that? If we're to strive after unity, one of the ways we can do that is to watch out for those things that will be wedges in between us. Now, I'm going to talk about some of the where the source of our unity is. I'm going to talk about a foundation of our unity that cannot be sacrificed, what, all, what it's all built on. But if we're to strive after unity, let me, let me talk about just a couple practical, practical means around this, first of all. First of all, unity with be- other believers around us. Just as you don't, and I'm going to assume for the moment that you don't, just as you don't gripe about your spouse before others. Like you don't complain to your buddies about the weird thing your wife is all anxious about or excited about and you don't get it at all, you don't know where she's coming from. You don't talk about her in a negative way to your buddies. And ladies, I know you never do this. You never talk about what's so frustrating for you that your husband is now doing. You don't gather the girls together and share those things. And you certainly don't put them on social media, right? Well, don't do that with your brothers and sisters in Christ either. It's just as unhelpful, it's just as unhealthy when we do that with one another in the body as if you were to do that within your marriage. This is actually a a practical application of 1 Corinthians chapter 6. You know that passage, it says says we're not supposed to take Christians to court. Don't take your grievance, Paul says, with another Christian before the unbelievers. What do they know? And why would we be airing our dispute among non-Christians? Why would we be airing out in the public view our criticism of a brother or sister in Christ, our dissatisfaction with our church, rather than working instead to bind up that unity and to pull one another and believers together. If you have a grievance with somebody, talk to the person you have the grievance with. If you must talk about them, talk about them to the Lord. Start there. If you need help from somebody else in order to pursue restoration or reconciliation of a relationship, that's the reason to go to somebody else. As described in Matthew 18, you, you, um, you, you, you go to your brother or your sister. If they will not hear you, then you, you take one or two witnesses. Others who, not because they heard you describe the thing to them, but others who can bear witness to the same thing, they saw it that way also, who can help to hopefully persuade the person that their view of it is not right. They need to yield. There can be restoration. That's why you involve others, not merely to vindicate your position. One of the choices we have to make in the process is that we will forbear with one another in love. As Colossians 3 says, I may be right, but it doesn't mean I'm entitled. There is a time when I might need to forbear with one another and just let that go. Paul says that even about instead of taking brothers and sisters to court, why not rather be wronged? What is that? That's forbearing with one another out of love. I'll trust this with the Lord. I'll leave this with Him. The relationship together is more important than the issue. There are times when we would sacrifice, even as we heard from the kids. We will sacrifice something that we could claim for the sake and the benefit of another. Because love, 1 Corinthians 13, love bears all things. Well, where does that unity come from? That's, that's one of the ways we would step into it, but where does it come from? What's the basis of it? Well, this is a song of ascents. A song of ascents, those particular psalms, those are the songs that they would sing on the way to Jerusalem, particularly as they're ascending on their way in the final days of a pilgrimage, pilgrimage they're ascending Jerusalem. They're coming up the hill. Or even within the city from the pool of Siloam, they're going up the hill toward the Temple Mount. Songs of Ascent were the songs of the festivals. And really, anywhere else you are in Israel, you're always going up to Jerusalem. Not merely topographically. But you might have to go down to go up. But Jerusalem is the high point because that's where God set his name. That's where he set his presence. That's where he established his blessing. And so... You always go up to Jerusalem. Anytime people are traveling to Jerusalem, no matter if they're going from Mount Hormone, the highest point, they go up to Jerusalem. Okay? (coughs) So, if it's a song of ascent, then one of the things that this unity is, is, is going to be founded upon is this festival that we're sharing together. The three times people would ascend, the three times everybody would go up to Jerusalem was for the Feast of Passover, celebrating the shared redemption in Christ. It was the Feast of Pentecost, celebrating God's abundant provision for us in this land and new life he has given. And it was the Feast of Tabernacles, selling, or celebrating rather, that God himself dwells with us. God tabernacled among us as he walked, as he lived with us and led us through the wilderness, so he dwells in the midst of his people. And so they would move out of their homes and dwell in tents or booths and dwell with God as had occurred in the wilderness. Those aspects of our redemption, those are the things that unite us. The same things they celebrate. It's kind of like when we gather in worship. We celebrate in worship Sunday by Sunday some key things. I hope there's never a time when you come to gather in worship in this place and you don't hear That Jesus Christ died for us to give us his life. That's something that we have to celebrate around. That's essential. That our God loves us. That he is our Lord. He is the one who has marked out the course of our lives. He is the one we can trust ourselves to beyond any other. These are core aspects that God will provide for us. We can trust him. Our unity is in that which we celebrate, and so our unity is in that which we celebrate and worship Sunday by Sunday. These grand themes, however, what about Monday? Monday's a holiday. What about Tuesday? Where will our unity be then? How will we apply this to the time outside of festivals in the rest of life? Let me give you another example. In church life together, we're entering a new era. We're, we're, we're approaching. We're not there yet. There's a couple of things that have to happen. The rest of the money for this initial stage of construction still needs to be provided. The, uh, the church members will be voting together and the county will need to be giving the final approval of the construction plans. All of those things need to happen before we can actually break ground and begin and yet we're seeing that. We're not there yet, but we can see it from here. And it could happen, we're told, as early as next January. And as early as next January, we could be all going back to school. We could be on Sunday morning over at Prairie High School rather than gathering here because all of this is going to be under construction. And to do that, there's people that are already scrambling. They're already working on how are we going to move this and move that, move things out of here, but also move things week by week into and out of Prairie High School while we at the same time continue the same essential ministries of worship together as a church and set up the stage for a worship team and the sound system, and set up a nursery space and a, and a preschool kindergarten space and a children's Sunday school space that needs to be set up in a high school. And you know what? The chairs are too big. There's all kinds of extra work we're going to have to do to that. There's, there's all kinds of plans being made and models being considered. And in the midst of all this extra stuff that we're going to have to do together and new teams being formed, guess what? We're going to bump into each other. Can I just tell you that in advance? We're going to bump into each other. Somebody else is going to step on your ministry toes. And that's okay. You walk on the bottom, they can walk on the top. Right? We're going to forbear with one another because we are united together in a much bigger thing that is not merely for us, but it's for the next generations that are going to kind of come after us. And we're going to have a participation in something. Our ministry is going to continue even beyond us if the Lord's return delays. And so we will give ourselves to that. We will yield and unite together even though we know we're going to bump into one another. That's where we're going to practice unity together as we're focused together on a greater, higher purpose than our own ambitions or our hurt feelings. Well, how will that be possible? By what means can we pull that off? And that brings us into verse 2 and this curious thing about oil on the beard. Unity, dwelling in unity, is like the precious oil on the beard running down on the beard. And that's just weird. Except it's running on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. Well, who is Aaron and what are his robes? And that's going to fill this out for us. This is a picture of the anointing of the high priest, first given to us in the book of Exodus. And it's practiced in Leviticus and and elsewhere. This pouring out of oil. And they start with over a gallon of anointing oil. It's olive oil, and there's all these these fragrant spices and other things that are mixed into that to make it this holy anointing oil. And a whole gallon of it isn't poured on Aaron's head. That would be a little messy. It's also used for Aaron's sons. It's used for anointing the articles of the tabernacle or the temple. But a generous amount is, is poured on Aaron's head when Aaron is anointed as the high priest. Enough oil is poured on Aaron's head in this anointing that it runs down the side of his head. Maybe it runs over his face and it, and it runs through his beard and it drips from his beard onto his robe. And it's a little messy. I'm okay with that. It's a little messy, but what is the image? What is the oil all about, this oil of anointing? The oil of anointing is an object lesson that demonstrates, it's a physical object that demonstrates a spiritual reality, which is the anointing of the Holy Spirit. 1 Samuel chapter 16, and verse 13, Then Samuel took the horn of oil, the anointing oil, and anointed David in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. The anointing of the oil was because of the anointing of the Spirit, that the Holy Spirit was upon him. So David prayed, take not your Holy Spirit from me. That was the anointing that mattered. The oil was just symbolic of the spiritual reality. Isaiah 61, a verse quoted by Jesus concerning his own ministry as the anointed, the Messiah, the Christ. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. So the Spirit is the one who poured upon us And each believer in Jesus is indwelled by the Spirit of the living God. Paul says in Romans chapter 8 that if you do not have the Spirit of Christ within you, you don't belong to Him. This is not a second blessing that's going to come at some point if you meet a certain amount of spirituality or have prayed long enough. This this blessing of God, this indwelling, this is the, the down payment. This is the earnest. This is the guarantee of our future inheritance. This is true for all believers, indwelt by the Spirit of the living God, His life within us. And that Spirit gives His life, God's life, to our mortal bodies. This Spirit sanctified us together in the mind of Christ for one another. And there's Philippians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. That's how we can be of one mind and one spirit in the gospel. It's because of the Spirit of God upon us. Spurgeon, in fact, says, Never shall we know the full power of this anointing of the Spirit till we are of one heart and Spirit by God's Spirit. That's where unity comes from. Unity is by, the, it's possible and it's only possible by the Spirit himself working upon us and our yielding to the working of the Spirit. And so Paul tells us to what? Be filled with the Spirit. And that's not more of the Spirit. It's contrasted to wine in the sense of be under the influence of the Spirit in ways that has observable outcomes. When you're you're influenced by wine, it's obvious to others. When you're influenced by the Spirit, it's observable. It's obvious to others. This mind of Christ, have this mind in you, Paul says in Philippians, which is also in Christ Jesus. There's the mind of maturity. There's the mind for believers to share together. When he says, let this mind be in you, he doesn't mean you, individually. He means you, all of us. It's a plural. Let this mind, this single mind, be in you all. That's the mind we're supposed to have. We're to share together the mind of Christ by the Spirit. This mind of Christ is, it was mentioned, the kids mentioned sacrifice earlier. Do you remember that? This sacrificing, there, there, there's a, a foundational piece of unity that we will, in the shared mind of Christ, put others first. And that, in fact, will strengthen our effectiveness in Christ's ministry. We lean into that, this mind of Christ, putting others' needs upon our own. We lean into that in the building project. We're, we're building something. We could get by with what we've got. We, we're looking ahead. There's a generation coming after us, even after there were those who preceded us who thought of us. We're considering the needs of others. We consider the needs of others when you step into the nursery to serve so that a young family has a, a safe, caring, and loving place for their little one while they're able to attend a class or to participate in the worship service. It might be the one break that mom gets in the week. Or maybe it's in preschool and kindergarten. Maybe it's your participation. You're giving your time and energy into a small group or a discipleship group or to serve the hours that it takes each week, serving as a deacon or an elder, to lead that grief-share group, to support a community ministry. Maybe it's to leave home and move to Saudi. There's all kinds of ways that we might give ourselves for the sake of others. And that's the mind of Christ in us, and that's where fruitfulness and ministry comes from. Jesus prayed for that. Jesus prayed for unity of the church, and often we take that, John 17 verse 20, go ahead and start turning there, we'll take John 17 and verse 20 and we'll use that to beat the drum of unity, saying whatever else we give up, we'll give up whatever it takes in order to get along together, because Jesus prayed for unity, Jesus told us to be one. And well, let me read the verses. John 17 and verse 20. Sometimes you have an understanding of something, and then you just take that thing and you, you turn it, you rotate it just slightly, or you come around and you see it from a slightly different perspective, and all of a sudden there's something there that you hadn't seen before. And I hope John 17 can be kind of like this. John 17, verse 20. Jesus is praying to his Father for those who will believe through the disciples. He's praying for you and I. I do not ask for these only, my disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That they, these who believe, will be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. The Father and the Son have the same mind. Jesus always does what pleases the Father. That they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, unified, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them, even as you loved me. Boil it down. When the church has this oneness, this unity that Jesus is praying for, the world will see that and know that God sent Jesus. What does that mean? Whatever else we, whatever we need to sacri- sacrifice, whatever we need to give up, whatever we need to lay aside so that all Christians can be in agreement together on whatever is left, because then the world is going to look at them and they're going to say, wow, look how they agree together. That Christian the Christianity thing must be real. You think that's it? I don't think that's it. I especially don't think that's it in America where we value individuality or actually a conformity to the next new is what we actually value. But we value that more than all being of the same mind. When everybody's of the same mind, it's time for something new to pop up so people can chase after that instead. Islam is unified, and people don't see the real Jesus there. Islam is unified, and yet people do not see in Islam that God sent Jesus for us. It's not being united that's the thing here. It's when the church is united together around the mind of Christ, there is where they see through his church the best manifestation of the mind of Christ in the actions of Christians. When we live together sacrificing for the sake of others the mind of Christ and his purpose and his outlook, that shows Jesus to others and they know him whom the Father sent. I think that's the point. That's the good, as well as the pleasant, of dwelling together in unity. I used to describe this in Swaziland in a way that Swazis loved. I'm not sure if you'll get it or not, but I'll, I'll do it anyway, just for old times' sake. Swaziland is a, is a country that has low grasslands, and it's kind of semi-tropical, and there they grow sugarcane and pineapples. But they also have higher elevations, and it's mountainous, and it's very beautiful. And it's mountain, there's clouds hanging over the mountains, and there's a lot of moisture there, and there's rain in those mountains. And so the, the sides of the hillsides are beautiful, lush, green. In fact, Swaziland used to be called the Switzerland of Africa. Swaziland, Switzerland, I think they had kind of an easy link there. In fact, we, we would get mail in our, in our missions office sometime that was actually intended for a post office box in Switzerland. They could get confused. But one of the reasons that was described is because of those beautiful mountainous areas. And when you drive up those... Now, Swazis love cattle. Swaziland's a small country, about a million people, about a million cows. And, and you could drive down the highway through this mountainous area, and you could look out to the side, and you would see cattle grazing on this beautiful, lush, green hillside. And one thing I figured out is that as the cattle moved up the hill... They got closer together. Well, think about it. It's a hill that's shaped like this. The higher the cattle go up the hill, the closer the cattle are going to be together. You get it? Cattle up the hill, closer together. So so are you and I. No, I'm not calling you a cow. Amos does that. He talks about the fat cows. That's a complete. I'm not even going to get myself in trouble. But no, as we... Climb, so to speak. As we get closer to the mind of Christ ourselves, we're going to be closer to one another. There is, in that pursuit together for the mind of Christ, may the mind of Christ my Savior live in me from day to day. And as that's true, to the extent that's true, we will find ourselves closer together as well. There is where our unity, our unity is from the Spirit, as he is working the mind of Christ within us. And that unity is actually, in fact, shared in that shared eternal life. It's grounded. We, we prefer the Spirit's unity, not a unity that we would manufacture. And we also unite around a shared eternal life. There's no other foundation for it. Look at verse 3. So the, the um, oil on the beard is emblematic of the, of the Spirit who provides this unity together in the mind of Christ. In verse 3, it is like the dew of Hermon which falls on the mountains of Zion. Now that's, that's wonderful in itself. There's this nice dewy mountain picture. It kind of reminds me of Swaziland, except the mountains of Zion are a long way from Hermon. And the dew that falls on Hermon is not really the dew that is falling on Mount Zion. They're a long way apart. Hermon is the tallest mountain in Israel. It's a mountain way up in the north, kind of the northeast, so it, it, it's shared between the north of Israel and southeast Lebanon and southwest Syria. And so Syria and Lebanon and, and, and Israel come together on Mount Hermon and you can ski. It's the one place in Israel where there's a ski resort. So you can ski when you go to Israel. Did you know that? Be careful where you ski on Mount Hermon. You might start in Israel and find yourself down at the bottom in Syria. I wouldn't advise it. But Hermon, okay, the highest mountain, that, and sometimes you can't even see the mountain because it's surrounded in clouds. Mountains do that, Right. And so this mountain is the place where there's moisture. In fact, the headwaters out of Jordan, they have their origination in springs, which are the result of the runoff from Mount Hermon. So the Jordan River that fills the Sea of Galilee, which is the main reservoir for Egypt and its fruitfulness, that's filled from the dew and the precipitation that falls on Mount Hermon. Okay. Okay. What does that have to do with the mountains of Zion? Because the mountains of Zion are the mountains that surround Jerusalem. These mountains of Jerusalem are much drier. They are on that ridge that separates the dry eastern side, the wilderness, the dry desert, from the foothills where more of the rain falls. So it gets a little dry by the time you get to Jerusalem. And there's a dew that falls there, but it's not the abundance of dew and moisture and participation, precipitation as falls on Hermon. Why this hydrology geography lesson? Well, he's, not, he's clearly not talking about the normal natural dew, but there is some refreshing, there is some source of life vitality that is on the mountains of Zion like that supreme example for Israelites of the vitality and the refreshment of the waters that come upon Mount Hermon, or Hermon. Okay? How is that? Well, let's, let, let's see clarification from the psalm. The dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord has commanded the blessing life forevermore the mountains of zion the mountains of jerusalem those hills are the place where god determined to set his name that place where god god already knew in advance and he told david along the way but he knew it in advance he led abraham there and it was there on those those mountains of zion on the hill of moriah that's where abraham offers his son isaac but he doesn't go through with the sacrifice god stops him and the and and abraham says Even to Isaac, God will provide himself a lamb for the sacrifice, and God does. And the lamb that God provides for himself as a sacrifice is the Son of God who takes away the sin of the world by dying for us on that same mountain, the mountains of Zion. On that same hill, there is Calvary, there is the cross, there is where he died, and his body, his blood is given for us for our redemption, for our salvation, for our eternal life. There God has commanded not just a blessing, but the blessing, life forevermore. The dew, the refreshment, the vitality, the new life that the desert hills desperately need. God has abundantly provided In the death of his son for us, there is the blessing and it is life. It is life everlasting. Our unity, that is good and pleasant, is not only bestowed upon us richly by the Spirit, but it is founded in our Lord's redemption of us. His restoration, his blessings... That's the basis for our unity in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14. That this, um, this, this, this um, well, let me back up. Ephesians chapter 4 tells us to, to desire, to be eager for the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. In a covenant, a bonding together of peace. And Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that, Jesus is our peace in his death for us. That our sin, our guilt, that which separated not only us from God, but that which separates us from one another, that sin, that guilt was put on his cross and was forever removed. He is our peace, not only our peace with God, but he is our peace one with another. That Jesus in his death for us, Jesus in his sacrifice in our place, he is the bond of peace. So strive for unity. Be eager to preserve the unity, and it's a unity of the Spirit. Prefer the Spirit's unity like the oil that overflows off the high priest Aaron by God's blessing upon him, which is like the life-giving dew of Hermon, which is the living waters of the mountains of Zion, where God himself has given his blessing of eternal life in Jesus our Savior. There is the foundation of our unity. I could sum it up this way. To the extent that Galatians 2.20 is true, for you and for me, we will be living in unity together. What is Galatians 2.20? I am crucified. I have died in Christ. Nevertheless, I live. I'm still alive. And yet, not I, but Christ lives in me. May the mind of Christ my Savior live in me from day to day. And this life, Paul goes on in Galatians 2, this life which I now live in this fleshly mortal body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loves me, who loved me and gave his life for me. To the extent that his life is lived in me, through me, in my life, and to the extent that his life is being lived in you, through you, in your life, we will be in unity together. So unity is something we each step into individually, and yet we will experience together. Endeavor. Strive to pursue the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Do you want to be that blessing of dew on the mountain? Think of that refreshing in a dry, dusty season of the fresh dew that falls on the mountain. Do you want to be that refreshing to others in life and vitality? Do you want to be like Philemon? Not like Philemon because he was the master instead of Onesimus the slave. Not like Philemon, this is that small letter at the end of Paul's writings, a little postcard in the New Testament. Not like Philemon who had a big enough house that he would have room for Paul when he visits. That's not why I want to be like Philemon. I want to be like Philemon because something Paul says about him. Paul says concerning Philemon, the hearts of the brothers and sisters have been refreshed by you. Do you want to be that? Do you want to be that refreshing by the life of Christ in you because the Spirit of God upon you toward one another, experiencing the good and pleasant blessing of the unity that God has given us in Christ, in his church? We can live out this new life in Christ, which unifies us in the Spirit's shared working, or we can continue on in the patterns of our natural fallen humanity. And that's not really a Sunday morning choice. That's a day by day choice, isn't it? May the mind of Christ, my Savior, live in me from day to day. I've said that song three times now because we sang it at the end of the first service, and I think we're going to do it again. But first, let's pray. Father, may that be true. May we sing it as a prayer. May we sing it as a request that you, by your grace, would help this to be true for us. That indeed, by the Spirit of the living God upon us, indwelling us, we would indeed live out that life of Christ. It's a life of sacrifice, a life that considers others. And Lord, there's there's things of selfishness in us. There's things of selfishness that remain. They nag at us. They, 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 they pull us back. And yet, Father, you call us to yield our desires, our ambitions, sometimes our own priorities, to yield those for a better purpose, a better priority that you have for us. You, you call us, in fact, to take up our own cross of suffering or sacrifice in order to follow you. Lord, we want to follow you. We want to know you. We want to help others to know and follow you. So Lord, strengthen us in what will be a busy next several months, in what will at times be a trying time. Father, unite us together, not only in a goal that is before us, but unite us by your Spirit. In the mind of Jesus, our Savior, that we would seek what's best for others, even as Jesus did for us, as we've been reminded by this table this morning. Indeed, Lord, let the mind of Christ, our Savior, live in each of us together. We pray in Jesus' name.